Well, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, we're going to be in Romans chapter 10 this morning. Romans chapter 10. This morning, I want to think about this question. Why do Christians feel the need to evangelize? Why do Christians feel the need to evangelize? One of the things I've told you before is still true today, and that is that uh, one of the most uncomfortable things for me personally about being a Christian is evangelism. Um, last week I was getting my hair cut, and you know, as the lady's cutting my hair, she asks, what do you do for a living? And we made eye contact in the mirror, and I said, I'm a pastor. And then we both had this look on each other's face, like, this is about to happen, isn't it? We're about to have a conversation about Jesus, aren't we? It's like, yeah. So, uh, and, and that's uncomfortable uh, for me, and it's probably uncomfortable for others. And it's probably uncomfortable for the people of earshot in that conversation, right? Um, and so it's just, it makes me feel awkward. Sometimes it makes me feel like uh, people think I'm a bigot or, um, you know, just a terrible person because I believe in Jesus and I want others to believe in him. That seems really oppressive and arrogant that I would want to convince others of that. And you probably have experienced that too, haven't you? It feels like, man, I... Uh, I know what, what you mean. And if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, um, you probably relate to that as well. Um, maybe that's even one of the reasons that Christians can be kind of off-putting to you, is because it feels like they want to just convince you of things or persuade you or convert you, and that just feels off-putting to you. So why do Christians feel the need to do that? Why is that something that is a part of Christianity and has always been a part of Christianity. Why is that the case? Well, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. To answer that question, why do we feel the need to do this? Um, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at Paul's flow of thought in this book of Romans. And we've been walking through um, some key sections of Romans the last several weeks. And so we're going to continue that this morning. And then we're going to look at a section of scripture where he specifically addresses that question. Okay, so we're going to walk through his, um, his flow of thought in Romans, and then we're going to talk about the implications that this has for us. And if this seems very, um, if, if on the surface, what we talk about seems very off-putting to you, if it feels offensive, if it feels arrogant, if it feels um, honestly just uh, intolerant or overly exclusive, um, just wait until... We walk through the scripture, and then I'll try to address some of those concerns, okay? So, Romans chapter 10 is where we're eventually going to get, but let's recap what's been happening so far in the letter, okay? Paul's reason for writing this letter to the Romans is pretty simple. He was um, traveling around the Mediterranean Rim, going to all these different Greek cities. He's a Roman citizen. And he wants to make it to Spain. And Spain at this time was as west as you could go. Um, it was the western territory of the Roman Empire. And he wanted to get to the end of the earth in his mind, in his world at least. He wanted to get to the end of the earth so that he could start a church in Spain. In order to do that, he was going to need some money. <laughs> and he had a little side business as a tent maker. Um, and so he had kind of a side hustle uh, but he also needed to be able to raise some funds to start this church in Spain. 
And so he writes this letter to the Romans to basically ask them if they will support him. And so in this letter, he's describing why he needs to get to Spain and preach. And that's what he explains throughout the whole thing. So why is he so eager to preach? Here's what he says. Romans chapter 1, verse 13. Oh, I forgot to give you my slides, didn't I? That is a major bummer. Um, They are, just if you've got time, they're on the desktop of my laptop, Chris. If you airdrop them over there and then just double-click it, it'll import. It's my fault. Um, I'm going to keep going, though, because we're not going to wait for that to happen. But eventually, they'll probably get it up on the screen, and it'll be easier for you to follow along. All right, Romans chapter 1. Here's what Paul writes. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. So this is the reason he's writing. He wants to preach this gospel. He talks about Spain in chapter 15. So why does he want this message to be preached all over the world? Why is that something that he is so interested in? That's what he explains in Romans 1.16. He says, because I am not ashamed of this gospel, this good news. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. So he says, the reason that I want to preach this message all over the world, including Spain and including all types of different people, slaves, barbarians, Greeks, Romans, Jews, Gentiles, everybody, is because this message that I preach has the power to save people. It has the power to save people, to which we should ask, well, what do we need to be saved from? This is what we talked about the first week. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Romans 2.5 Because of your hard and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul says the reason that everybody needs the good news is because of the bad news. The bad news is that because we are unrighteous, because we, we have sinned, God, who is a good authority, wants to step in and deal with injustice. He's not an authority who sweeps it under the rug. Instead, he's, author- he's an authority who confronts it. And that's bad news for all of us because all of us are sinners. So why does Paul need to preach this good news? Because there's bad news. So what is the good news? If the bad news is that we're all sinners and God's wrath is going to be revealed on us, what's the good news? Romans 3, 21 through 25. The good news is that God has made it possible for unrighteous people to be made righteous by trusting in Jesus. Here's what he says. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus 
whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, we taught a whole message on those verses uh, a few weeks ago. If, you're, if you weren't here for that, you can go online and listen to that. But the good news is this, that even though we are unrighteous people, Jesus has come, and though Jesus was righteous, he became unrighteous for us. He went to the cross and took the sins of us on him. He was judged in our place. He was condemned in our place so that we could go free, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be restored to fellowship with God. That is what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And he didn't stay dead, but instead he came back to life to offer us real, satisfying, rich, eternal, everlasting life. That's what Jesus has done. So that's the good news for the bad news. And then we talked about last week how this good news can change us. When we trust in Jesus, we are united with him and we are able to overcome the sin that's in our lives. Romans chapter 6 verse 13. Do not present your members, that means the different parts of your body, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So now that Paul throughout this whole letter has been making the case for why we need this good news to be preached all over the world, he returns to that theme in chapter 10 to get specific. So he's been describing that news that he preaches, and now he's going to get to chapter 10, and he's going to explain why this message needs to be told around the world. Why do we need to evangelize? That's what he's going to explain in chapter 10. So look at chapter 10. Verse 9. In chapter 3, he said that all people are the same. There's no distinction because everybody's a sinner. Now he's going to say everybody's the same. There's no distinction because the Savior is the same for everyone. Jesus is Lord of all. Look at what he says. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now, he's not making a distinction between you have to believe and confess, and if you don't say it out loud, then you don't really believe. And I don't think that's what he's doing. I think that he's Jewish, and he's trained in Hebrew poetry, and one of the ways of Hebrew rhetoric in his day was to say parallel things back to back, and they mean the same thing, but they're, uh, it's a different way of saying it. So you believe, and you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. There's something parallel. You'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and then with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So he's saying that In order to be saved, you have to believe something and confess something. You have to believe and confess that Jesus is Lord, that God raised him from the dead. Then he says, verse 11, For the scripture says, now he quotes from the Old Testament, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Verse 12, here's our little phrase. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all 
who call on him. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So why do we need to evangelize? Why is that something that Christians have always believed in? Why is that something that Christians have always done? Because everybody needs this good news. And it's available to anyone. Anyone can believe and be saved. Now maybe you need to hear that because you're not that religious of a person. And in your mind, what it means to connect with the divine or the spiritual is to take up some kind of ritual or adopt some practices into your life or be more moral or more upright, more righteous, more just, whatever. Give to the poor. You think that in order for you and God to be good or for you to connect with this higher being, that you need to do something. The message of Christianity is not that you have to do something. The message of Christianity is that something has been done for you. Jesus has died in your place. He's been raised from the dead, and you can be right with God by trusting in Jesus and what he's done. That's the message. So why does that need to be preached? That's what he says. Verse 14. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed. That makes sense. You don't call somebody for help at your house if they can't help you, right? Like Courtney never asks me for help fixing something. Hey, Nate, we're wondering, uh, you know, this thing is not working right, and we're wondering if you could, this never happened. You know why? Because she doesn't believe that I could do anything about it, okay? So you don't call somebody unless you think, you believe that they could do something to help. So how are they going to call on somebody that they don't believe in? And then he says, how are they going to believe in him whom they've not heard? The people that you call for help are people that you know. The people you believe in are people you've heard about. So you can't believe unless you hear. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to hear unless somebody preaches? And the word preach is not like this, okay? The word preach is just an announcement. It's just letting people know about something. It's like, hey, we're all getting together here on Friday night. It's just, you know, news, an update, letting people know stuff, an announcement, a group text, all right? That's what preach is. It's just communicating a message. So how are they going to hear without somebody preaching? And then he says, And how are they to preach unless they are sent? In other words, unless somebody sends people to go with the message, how are they going to let people know about the message? And I'm learning this as a leader. A lot of times I've got a plan. The problem is not the lack of the plan. The problem is the lack of my communication for what the plan is. In order for people to go with the message and get everybody on the same page and us to have good teamwork, at some point, people have to be sent with the correct information. And it's the same with the good news. In order for people to hear it, somebody has to speak it. In order for somebody to speak it, somebody has to be sent to speak it. 
And that's why the church has always emphasized evangelism. God's plan for helping people know and believe the good news is God sends people. In fact, this is how Jesus came. Think about this for just a minute. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. This is Jesus talking about himself. He says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's why he came to earth. 1 Timothy 1.15 The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. This is why Jesus came. He was sent by the Father to save. This is why in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus first gets on the scene, the first thing he does is not heal someone. The first thing he does is preach the good news. And then Jesus says to his followers in John 20, 21, after he's been raised from the dead, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And then a different time when he's with his followers. Matthew chapter 28. And Jesus came and said to them, this is to his little, you know, band of followers at this point, small little group. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. That word just means students, people who learn, students. Make disciples of all nations. So it's for everyone, white people, black people, brown people, people who speak English, people who speak Spanish, people who speak languages I don't even know about. It's for all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And look, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So why do we evangelize? Because in order for people to call on Jesus, they have to believe in him. In order for them to believe in them, they have to hear about him. And in order for them to hear about him, then somebody has to preach to them. And in order for somebody to preach to them, somebody has to go to them. So that's why evangelism is important. Now, Think about the powerful implication of that for just a minute. The fact that we are saved not by what we do, but by news. Good news. News is something that you communicate when there is a plan. News is what you communicate when something happened. The fact that people are saved by good news being communicated implies that we don't do it. We do not save ourselves. Instead, we are saved by something that he has done. And the way that we get access into that is we hear and we believe. That's what we do. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, the invitation for you is the same invitation that it was for me. The invitation is come believe. Come believe and call on Jesus to save you.
That's the invitation. Why do Christians feel the need to evangelize? Why is evangelism a true mark of Christianity? Because the only way for people to be saved is by hearing and believing the good news. The only way for people to be saved is by hearing and believing the good news. Now, there are a couple things about that that are uncomfortable, especially in a culture like ours. And so I just want to address a couple of those quickly. First, what about people who have never heard and are never given the opportunity to hear? What about people who live in remote villages in South America, remote villages in Southeast Asia? What about people like that who have never heard the message? What about people who were living in 700 AD who never heard the message? Well, the first thing I would say is I would ask you a question. I would say, if you believe that people who have never heard will be saved, what is the basis for them being saved? That would be my first question. And I would ask it honestly, if we were having a conversation. Is it that good people who are in other nations who have never been able to hear would be saved? And that bad people would not be saved? Is it that humble people would be saved, but proud people would not be saved? Is it that people who practice the religion that they know of will be saved, but those who don't will not be saved? And if you're making a distinction there about good and bad, then we're right back to salvation by works. We're right back to the way that we are right with God is by doing something that we earn, doing something that we are responsible for. And that is a really dangerous place to be because there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what's the basis? If it's good and bad, we're right back into justification by works. And Paul has gone to great lengths to show that it's always been by faith that people are saved. If the basis for why people should be saved is just because they've never had an opportunity to hear. Just because they've never heard, they should be saved. The problem there is that evangelism is actually one of the cruelest things you could ever do for someone. If they're going to be saved by not hearing, then it makes absolutely no sense that you should go and that we should go and tell them. We're actually putting them in a worse position then. Now again, I get that this is uncomfortable, okay? But let's at least be honest as Christians about what the Bible says, all right? Let's not be Christians who just try to make the Bible say what we want it to say. Let's just be honest about what it does say. This, it, Paul is telling us we need to go with this news and people need to hear the message. But if... By them knowing the message, they have a chance to reject it, and then on that basis, they will be condemned. Then it would be a terribly unloving thing to go to them. So what about people who never hear? Here's what I would say. 
This is what I know for sure. That God created us with a good purpose. He created all people and he loves the world. All people. And he designed us to be in fellowship with him. That was his vision for the world. We have all broken that fellowship. And I don't have to sell you on that. If there's a supreme being in the world who created you and is good, you know that you're worse than him, right? Like, I don't have to sell you on that. So we've all broken our fellowship with him. That's what I know. God has made a way for people to be right with him, and he's done that by coming to us. This is why he says, we didn't read these verses, we don't have time to get into exactly what they mean, but this is why he says, you don't have to say, this is chapter 10, verse 6, um, you don't have to say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Instead, the word of faith that we proclaim is Jesus is near to each one of us. So Jesus has come. So you don't have to go to heaven to try to earn your way. And God has made a way for people to be right with himself. That's what I know. And I know that the way that people are saved is they get Jesus in their life. I don't know what happens to people who have never heard the message. I don't know. I know that God is far more merciful than I am, and he's far more good and just and fair than I am. But if there's a way for people to get to God without ever hearing the gospel, I don't know what it is. And what we're commanded to do is take the gospel to people. We are commanded to take the gospel to a dying world and let them know that there's life to be had in Jesus. Now, if you're not a Christian, maybe this is one of the things that makes Christianity so annoying to you, is everything that I just said. And I understand that. And if you are a Christian, this is maybe one of the things that makes you most uncomfortable about being a Christian. Because how could there be just one way to be saved? Isn't it arrogant to say that your religion is superior to everyone else's and to try to convert others to your religion? And isn't it not even just arrogant, but isn't it dangerous? Isn't religion like that what has led to untold violence and oppression in the world? And as Christians, we need to be honest about the fact that, yes, at times, Exclusive religious belief like that has led to lots of persecution, even in the name of Jesus. But if you look at that and that makes you discount Christianity, I would just ask you to consider, was that actually an accurate representation of what Christianity is? Is a religion that is founded by a man who hung on a cross and as he was doing so, was praying that God would forgive the people who were hanging him there, is an accurate representation of that faith storming the Middle East to take back Jerusalem. The other thing that I would want to do is just talk briefly about this claim of exclusivity being offensive. I would just want to ask a few questions. First, I would want to talk about what are the assumptions, what are the beliefs that are underneath feeling that 
the fact that Christianity is exclusive, that Jesus is the only way? What are the things underneath in my heart that make me so resistant to that? And I need to credit Tim Keller and his book, Reason for God, for helping me think about some of these things. Maybe one of the assumptions underneath this resistance to exclusivity is, the, is that religious belief is too culturally and historically and geographically conditioned to be true. So how could Christians in America today on November 24th claim that there's only one way to God? Isn't that just, they only believe that because they were born in America. That's what Americans have been taught to believe. If you were born in Morocco, you'd be a Muslim. You'd never heard of Jesus and you wouldn't be telling people that he was the only way to salvation. Of course, that statement must also be geographically and culturally and historically conditioned then, right? Would you believe that if you weren't from America? Would you be a pluralist if you weren't from America? So you can't say that all claims about religions are historically conditioned except the one I'm making right now. So then we're right back to evaluating the truth of the claims. Maybe the assumption underneath this resistance to exclusivity is just thinking that it's arrogant to insist that your religion is right and trying to convert others to it. Maybe that just feels arrogant to you. John Hick, who is a professor, was a professor at Cornell and Princeton and Cambridge, he says this, once you become aware that there are many other equally intelligent and good people in the world who hold different beliefs from you and that you will not be able to convince them otherwise, then it is arrogant for you to continue to try and convert them or to hold your view to be superior truth. But, here's what's interesting about that. To assert that everyone is free to practice whatever religion they want, so long as they don't try and convert others, is a belief about religion that you're trying to convert me to. Mark Lilla um, is a professor at the uh, University of Chicago. I think actually now he uh, might be at Columbia University. But he tells the story um, about this young, bright student who was in one of his classes who um, uh, went to a Billy Graham crusade and was converted. And he went forward and converted from agnosticism to being a Christian. And he was talking to this professor about this. And here's what Mark Lilla said. He says about that, I wanted, I think this is on the screen, yeah. I wanted to cast doubt on the step he was about to take to help him see there are other ways to live, other ways to seek knowledge, love, even self-transformation. I wanted to convince him his dignity depended, depended on maintaining a free, skeptical attitude towards doctrine. I wanted to save him. Doubt, like faith, has to be learned. It is a skill. But the curious thing about skepticism is that its adherents, ancient and modern, have so often been proselytizers or evangelists. In reading them, I've often wanted to ask, why do you care? Their skepticism offers no good answer to that question. 
and I don't have one for myself. You see what he's saying? He's saying what he realized about himself is that he wanted to convert this young man to his way of viewing religion and the world. But he couldn't actually figure out what his basis for wanting to convert him was because he's a skeptic. What does he care? Believe whatever you want. Why did he feel the need to try to convert him to be a secularist? And what he's pointing out is that we're basically all exclusive and we're basically all evangelists just in different ways. So if your problem is that this seems too exclusive, then I would love to have a conversation with you more about that. But behind that critique is a concern that I think we should all have. Behind that critique of this being too exclusive is this desire to protect people from religion bullying them and oppressing them. If Christians go around believing that we're the only people God loves and we're the only ones who have the you know, corner on the truth market so that you can be saved and go to heaven, then won't that inevitably lead to arrogance and oppression and marginalization of people who believe and think differently? And the answer to that question is no. Because of the message that Christians claim to believe. Here's the message that Christians claim to believe. That Jesus himself taught that we should be the kinds of people, his followers should be the kinds of people who are recognized as good by pagans, by people who believe differently. That we should live in such a way that our values seem, in some ways, at least respectable. Because we're honest. We don't lie. We're kind. We don't gossip. We don't ridicule. We're generous. We don't hoard things and we don't live with greed. And that should be the kind of thing that people look at with respect. Also, the image of God is something that Christians believe in. And that leads us to conclude that non-believers will be better than any of their mistaken beliefs could make them. People will naturally be better than some of their terrible ways of thinking about the world and Jesus and salvation should lead them to. They'll be better than that because they're made in the image of God. There's a blessing on them that will enable them to do some things that are remarkable. And we should recognize that. We should also recognize that because of universal sinfulness or what we might call total depravity, that even believers will be worse in practice than their individual beliefs should make them. We believe in a Savior who is just and kind and generous. But because of sin, we should recognize that there will be times where we do not live up to that. And so this should lead us to conclude that it's perfectly normal to meet people of different faiths who are better than me, who are kinder than me, who are wiser than me, who are smarter than me. Because I am not saved by being wise and smart and kind and good. I am saved because Jesus was the ultimate of all of those things and he has died on the cross for me in my place. And we are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God so that no one can boast. So there should be no such thing as an arrogant Christian. 
Christianity is rich with resources that can make its followers agents for peace on earth. And that's why, even though it's uncomfortable, just as Paul said, I do not want to be ashamed of the gospel. I don't want to be ashamed that it's the only way to salvation. Because it's the power of God to save. So, let's wrap this thing up. There's a lot of philosophy or whatever, and I'm not a philosopher, so it probably wasn't that interesting. Um, So, what should we do? Three things. This is on the screen for you. Three things. What should we do? Pray, give, and go. Pray, give, and go. First of all, if you are a Christian, you should pray for people who are not saved, that they would come to know Jesus. Paul says that in Romans chapter 10. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Talking about his own Jewish heritage, his own people. He says, my prayer to God for them is that they would be saved. And that should be our prayer as well. We should pray for people who don't know Jesus, that they would come to know him. And that he would use us to help them know. So we should pray for people. We should pray for people groups. Pick a state in the country. Oregon. Wyoming. Don't pick Alaska. Nobody lives there. All right? Pick, <laughs> pick a populated area and pray for them. I'm just joking. The gospel's for all people. If Alaska's your jam, go for it. But pick a place and pray for those people. Pick a country and pray for those people. So pray. That's the first thing. Second thing is to give. Romans 15, 24. I think this is on the screen, but I can't remember. I don't think it is. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, he says, and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So I'm going to hang out with you guys, but then I'm hoping you guys will help me get to Spain, he says. And the church has always funded missions. So, We need to give so that the gospel can go forward. Imagine what it would be like as an individual or as a family if you committed to being a generous giver because you want to see people of all nations come to know Jesus. Imagine what it would be like for our church to plant more churches in our city, in the country, and around the world. Imagine what that would be like. You know what that takes? Money. <laughs> and that's why on the budget that we're proposing for 2020, 10% from the very get-go of everything that we receive goes directly to missions. You know why? Because we want to be a church that's about missions. Should that percentage be higher? Yeah, probably. And someday, hopefully, it will be. We want to be a church that's about the nations, coming to know Jesus. So let's be a church that gives to that. And then the last thing is to go. Let me ask you something. Where do you need to go with the good news? Where is God sending you? Is it across the street? Is it down the hall? Is it Aside in the cubicle, 
Where is God sending you? Is it next door? Is it to the nations? Look, you've got all kinds of reasons why you and your spouse are not supposed to be missionaries. Are they good reasons? I'm serious. Listen, I just heard, I read a story this week about these two 80-year-old women who were both widows. They were like, what are we going to do with however long we've got left? And they said, we're moving to China. We're selling all, selling all of our stuff. We are moving to China to be with these missionaries that they had sent out from their church. And the way that they died is they went flying off a cliff in a bus that didn't work as they were going to another village to tell more people about Jesus. And that is a glorious way to go out. So why are you not going? Is it a good reason? Listen. I heard a pastor say this this week, and it just, I was telling Courtney, it just like cut me like deep, man. The greatest injustice is not that people who have never heard of Jesus, that God would condemn them to hell. The greatest injustice is that people who believe that would not go. So where is God sending you? There's this phrase that people say sometimes, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. And that's attributed to St. Francis um, and he did not say that. And yes, absolutely, our words and our actions should match. But the gospel is not proclaimed by doing things. It is proclaimed with your mouth. It's a message that has to be heard to be believed. And so we've got to have boldness to speak. Don't be deceived into thinking that you can just share the gospel by your actions. You've got to use your words. It's a message. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son, Jesus. I pray that we would be obedient to go. God, if anything I said is confusing or complicated, God, I'm sorry for complicating your simple message this morning. I ask that you would give us grace to hear and obey your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.